0: Welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines a new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Pacific Overtures.
1: I was standing on the beach near the cliffs of Oshima. I was spreading out the nets for the morning sun. It was all in July and the day was getting hot And I stopped to wipe my eyes and by accident I turned
0: Oh. Hope- this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds Benny very well because we are recording this episode on his 29th birthday. He was gracious enough to come in on his birthday very early in the morning. We are here in the stage left studio. The sun has barely, oh, it has barely risen above the horizon. But we came together, we broke birthday bread, we exchanged gifts, we sang, we sang the birthdays song for our Benny. Yes, we did. I am so happy to have Benny on our team. Benny, as you may know if you've been listening to this show for a while, Benny came in as a substitute for Patty when she was on maternity leave. Yes, yes, that's right. That's the origin story for Benny, but we loved Benny so much that we asked him to stay on permanently, and he agreed much to our, oh, much to our not chagrin, no, we grinned is what we did, when he said yes, and ever since then, we have been so much better off as a team. Three musketeers here in the stage left studio. Happy birthday to you, Benny. Happy 29th birthday. Oh my goodness. Well, on a positive note, well, let's remain on a positive note because while listening to the Kismet soundtrack, the soundtrack, the cast album, when I was editing that episode and I was putting in all of the various pieces of audio from that cast album, it struck me that Arthur Kay's Kismet orchestrations, they popped a bit harder for me when I was putting that episode together. Credit where it's due, you know. They are quite lush, those orchestrations, and they very nearly make up for the banality of the lyrics. Uh Uh-oh, we're sliding into negativity. Oh, no. None of those songs were written for actors, I can say. I can tell you that much. (laughs) Finally, on the subject of actors who introduce performances at the Tonys while in character. This subject came up during our coverage of Chicago. I asked our listeners if they knew of any other examples of actors presenting in character at the Tony Awards and Sydney reached out to me. She reminded me that Jefferson Mays did just that very thing for A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, okay? Mays' speed runs through a trio of dice with personas and it is impressive. I watched it again. I loved it. Pure speech and debate humorous interp energy. If you were a speech and debate kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about because I did humorous interp or H.I. as a member of my (laughs) as a member of my school's speech and debate team. It is now time for the show facts regarding Pacific Overtures. Show me the show facts. All right, let's go! Pacific Overtures was a 1976 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on January 11, 1976 at the Winter Garden Theater and ran for 193 performances. The book was written by John Y. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Ever heard of him? Dance music by Danny Trube Additional material. Ooh, I love an additional material credit. That goes to Hugh Wheeler. The director of the production, Harold Prince. Musical director, Paul Gemignani. Hello again, Paul. Orchestrations, Jonathan Tunick. Choreographer, Patricia Birch. Scenic design, Boris Aronson. Lighting design, Theron Musser. Sound design, Jack Mann. Costume design, Florence Klotz, And Kabuki consultant, Haruki Fujimoto. let Let's Let's talk about Haruki Fujimoto. As the only Japanese member of the production team, Fujimoto was tasked with an enormous amount of responsibility that went well beyond his role as kabuki consultant. He was also the dance captain, assistant to the choreographer, and a vital member of the cast. Fujimoto received credit for this work, of course, but he deserved more. He should have been listed as a co director for a start. You cannot tell me his contributions were somehow less meaningful than anything Hal Prince brought to the table. And what about the orchestrations? The costume, lighting, sound, and scenic designs? Surely those would have been developed in tandem with the kabuki elements, right? The term consultant is doing a lot of heavy lifting here, but it also flattens Fujimoto's role on the team. A consultant is someone you call on the phone when you have a question, not someone who informs every aspect of your production. Let's talk about Stephen Sondheim for a second before we continue with the show facts. I do not doubt Sondheim's sincere interest in Japan, but if you are going to write about Japan and its relationship with the West, you need to collaborate with a Japanese writer. Put another way, if your goal is to write a score that blends Japanese Japanese and Western styles, you need to collaborate with a Japanese writer. Sondheim preferred to operate as a one man band, I get it, but that degree of isolation can be a hindrance, as Pacific Overtures would attest. I know I haven't broken down the plot, you may not be familiar with this show, Japan, the influence of the West. What are you talking about, Jonathan? Everything will come out in the wash, I assure you. But I just want to say, you know, isolation as an artist, that's not a great thing. The call is coming from inside the house, Stevie. Ring, ring, okay? Why don't you pay attention to your own show's themes? See also Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, tapping Tony Kushner to write West Side Story. Representation should extend beyond who is in front of the camera, Stevie. Ring, ring. Stevie, the call. Lest anyone accuse me of playing softball with Sondheim, let me be clear, the man is a tourist as far as Japan is concerned, a strident, if well-intentioned, westerner imposing himself on people who are fully capable of telling their own stories. But Jonathan, how can you say Sondheim wasn't a collaborator? You said that a moment ago. That's unfair. Surely he collaborated with Fujimoto when it came to the writing? Come on. All right, so where is Fujimoto's writing credit? If you're going to make one person the sole authority on all things Japanese, then you need to give that person their due. The 2017 off-Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures would have been an excellent opportunity to include a Japanese writer as it featured a new and highly abridged version of the book. But who wound up writing the abridged book? John Weidman, the white guy who wrote the original book. Well, that's only right, Jonathan. No, Wright would be owning up to the idea that white people had their moment and now it's time for non-white people to try their hand at the material. Then again, then again... I've already made it clear that people of color should not have to fly in and resuscitate politically shaky material, so uh, maybe I should stick with that philosophy. Belated disclaimer, this is all coming, of course, from one white cis gay man's mouth. I do not mean to speak for individuals or entire communities, but I do have a Japanese consultant, my husband, ah, Chris Kitamura, Johnson Kitamura, who is half Japanese, thank you, very brunch, so yeah, think twice before coming to me with your objections. Ha, I'm being sarcastic. Let's get back to the show facts. The original Broadway cast of Pacific Overtures was as follows. I want to begin with the Broadway debuts because there are so many Broadway debuts. We begin with Mako, who played Aku on Samurai Jack, and Uncle Iroh on Avatar, The Last Airbender. I know millions of people know him. They may not know his name, but you've definitely heard his voice if you're a fan of animation. We follow him with O, Isio Seiko. Ernest Abuba Tim Fuji Joey Ginza Larry Harna Ernest Harada, Alvin Ng, who would go on to appear in the 2004 Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures, Patrick Kinzer Lau, Diane Lam, Jay Wu Lee, Freddie Mao, Tony Mourinho, Kevin Mong, Kim Mayori, Dingo Secretario, Frida Foshen, Mark Hsu Sires, Ricardo Tobaya, Getty Watanabe, who I'm sure many people know from his film roles in 16 Candles, The Sex Lives of College Girls, and ER, a mixing film and TV there, but Getty Watanabe, everyone knows who he is, I I assume we also have Leslie Watanabe and Fusako Yoshida. So congratulations to all of those Broadway debuts. And then rounding out this cast, we have a slew of veterans. Oh, they've tread the boards before. I'm going to go into some of their credits here. Okay, here we go. We have Haruki Fujimoto. Who we've already talked about, of course. His Broadway debut was in It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. After his appearance in Pacific Overtures, Fujimoto never appeared on Broadway again. We have Yuki Shimoda, who had appeared in the Tea House of the August Moon and played Ito in the play Anti-Mame. Saab Shimono, who appeared as Ito in the musical Mame, as well as the 2004 Broadway revival of Pacific Overtures. Kenneth S. Eland, who appeared in the musical Truckload. I had never heard of this show before. It apparently played six previews, but never officially opened on Broadway. How about James Dibus, who appeared in Do I Hear a Waltz and was assistant to the director of Truckload? Susan Kikuchi, who appeared in Flower Drum Song, Tom Matsusaka, who was a replacement for Ito in the musical MAME, and finally we have Conrad Yama, who appeared in Flower Drum Song previous to his appearance in Pacific Overtures. When reviewing the resumes of these actors, you come across a number of references to Flower Drum Song, MAME, and The King and I. Opportunities for Asian actors were not and are not as varied as they could have been and should be today. Tony nods for Pacific Overtures. The production won Best Scenic Design, which went to Boris Aronson, and Best Costume Design, Florence Klotz. Additional nominations Best Musical, of course, but also Best Book of a Musical, John Weidman, Best Original Score, Stephen Sondheim, Best Actor in a Musical, Mako, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Isao Sato, Best Lighting Design, Theron Musser, Best Choreography, Patricia Birch, and finally Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Hal Prince. And nominations in total, two awards when all was said and done, and I do want to apologize one more time. I try my best to pronounce all of these first and last names correctly, but inevitably I will be running into mistakes. It's time now to deconstruct the plot of Pacific Overtures. Let's do that now. A character known as the Reciter draws our attention to Japan, or Nippon, in the year 1853. For two and a half centuries, Japan has operated under a sakoku, or closed country policy, which has allowed it to remain isolated from the rest of the world. This period of history, the Edo period, will soon come to an end. As the show begins, Japan is at relative peace behind closed doors. Manjiro, a fisherman previously lost at sea, returns to the island nation after spending six years in Boston, Massachusetts. Manjiro was rescued from the sea by Commodore Matthew C. Perry. At the behest of President Millard Fillmore, Commodore Perry is now on his way to Japan to begin trade negotiations. Manjiro delivers this news to the authorities, Lord Abe and the counselors to Japan's shogun, or military leader. For his efforts, Manjiro is arrested for conspiring with foreigners. The shogun promotes a low-level samurai named Koyama, to prefect of police for the city of Araga and charges him with turning the foreigners away. Kayama and his wife, Tamate, believe the mission will fail and they will be forced to commit seppuku, or suicide. Their fears are validated when the Americans laugh at Kayama's demonstration of authority. Kayama frees Manjiro from prison and disguises him as a great lord who can impress the Americans. The gambit produces valuable intel. Commodore Perry wishes to meet with the Shogun and deliver a letter meant for Japan's Emperor. If a meeting does not occur in the next six days, Perry's warships will decimate Uraga. Side note, the title of this week's subject can be found within the Commodore's original actual correspondence. This show is, of course, based on historical events. Dated July 7th, 1853, the letter includes the following passage Many of the large ships of war destined to visit Japan have not yet arrived in these seas though they are hourly expected, and the undersigned, as an evidence of his friendly intentions, has brought but four of the smaller ones, designing, should it become necessary, to return to Japan in the ensuing spring with a much larger force. But it is expected that the government of your imperial majesty will render such return unnecessary by acceding at once to the president's very reasonable and pacific overtures. The shogun refuses to acknowledge the commodore's request, choosing instead to find solace in food, sex, and sleep. This shocking display of indecision inspires the shogun's mother to poison him via chrysanthemum tea. As she reasons, how can the Americans deliver a letter to the shogun if there is no shogun to receive it? The shogun's mother does not... Fuck around. Kayama becomes the governor of Araga after developing another ingenious plan, one that will allow Commodore Perry to visit Japan without setting foot on its soil. This involves a great deal of carefully placed mats that the Americans can walk on, and the construction of an elevated treaty house, a process Kayama supervises with Manjiro by his side. The two become good friends and return to Uraga with newfound optimism, but Kayama is devastated to find Tamate has killed herself in his absence. Having not heard from her husband in several days, she assumed the worst had occurred. Commodore Perry enters the treaty house for a long and arduous round of negotiations, a warrior spies on the discussion while tucked within the floor of the treaty house. He's there in case anything should go wrong, I should say. If there is a signal, he is meant to pop out and kill the Americans. This does not wind up happening, spoiler alert. A 10-year-old boy also spies on the conversation from the safety of a nearby tree. The warrior, the boy, and the old man the boy grows to become share their memories of that day while ruminating on history's silent observers. The negotiations prove successful. Successful. Commodore Perry's letter is delivered to the Emperor and the Americans agree to leave. Wonderful. Goodbye forever barbarians. It's nice to know we will never see you again. Act one ends with the Commodore performing a kabuki lion dance that morphs into an American cakewalk. Not a great omen. Act 2. Japan's child emperor, here represented by a puppet operated by his advisors, awards a number of promotions in the wake of the Commodore's departure. Kayama is officially confirmed as the governor of Araga. Manjiro becomes a samurai, much to his surprise, and Lord Abe is selected as the 13th Shogun. Any sense of victory or national pride instantly dissolves with the arrival of American, French, Russian, British, and Dutch ambassadors, each each one bearing a list of increasingly elaborate demands. Shogun Abe is characterized as weak by the lords he once knew as peers. The lords advised the emperor to depose Shogun Abe and restore Japan to its former isolated glory. Fifteen years pass. Kayama and Manjiro remain close, though their dynamic has begun to reflect Japan's struggle with its identity. For example, Manjiro prefers the traditional clothing of his people, whereas Kayama clings to his bowler hat and pocket watch as if they were life preservers. Kayama has spent the last 15 years assuring Shogun Abe that all is well in Japan, Generally speaking, true foreigners are everywhere now, and they are constantly coming into conflict with the Japanese, but, uh, you know, it's a balancing act. Matters come to a head when a trio of British sailors mistake the daughter of a samurai for a geisha. Their increasingly aggressive propositions cause the girl to cry out, Father! The samurai appears and one of the sailors is killed almost instantly. The emperor calls upon Kayama and Shogun Abe so they may discuss this incident. During their journey to the emperor's palace, Kayama and Abe are attacked by assassins and Abe is murdered. Kayama discovers one of the assassins is none other than his dear friend, Manjiro. Their confrontation ends with Kayama's death. Having lost another shogun, the Emperor resolves to seize complete control over Japan. He makes it his mission to modernize as swiftly and efficiently as possible, and we watch as the landscape and culture of Japan transform over the span of decades. The reciter appears in modern 1970s attire to deliver the show's final lines. Quote, Nippon, the floating kingdom. There was a time when foreigners were not welcome here. But that was long ago, 120 years. Welcome to Japan. Quote, For the purposes of this week's episode, I began by listening to the 1976 original Broadway cast album of Pacific Overtures. I followed that with the 1976 Tony Awards performance of The Advantages of Floating in the Middle of the Sea, which is the show's opening number. The use of Japanese screens as a way of revealing the cast and its increasing size is a wonderful bit of staging that really stuck with me. The simple effects always stick with me. I feel like I've mentioned this before. Really simple, very... Very clean effects, oh boy, that has has more power and punch than any multi-million dollar spectacle, I tell you that. A comment, okay, so obviously this clip is on YouTube, the Tony Awards performance is, I should say, and there is a comment under that video from three years ago that I have to share with you because it is mind-boggling. The mind boggles, my goodness, here it is, quote, The fact that so many of Sondheim's musicals were financial failures and closed so soon is going to go down in history alongside Van Gogh's inability to make a living as an artist in his time. Quote, I have never in my life, I've never ever in my life thought to compare Stephen Sondheim to Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent van Gogh, who was so his his career was so ruinous and he was plagued by self-doubt, he killed himself, for God's sake, he famously, as the myth, as the myth would tell us, he never sold a painting. Steven Sondheim had <laughs> an immense amount of financial and critical success. Yes, I know some of his shows did not run for a very long time, quote unquote. But the arrogance, the this the confidence, I wish I had the confidence to make this sort of insane comparison. Ah, uh, yes. I know that one day Steven Sondheim will be appreciated. Someday. Someday Steven Sondheim will be appreciated, much like Vincent Van Gogh was appreciated posthumously long after he was in the ground. Are you kidding me? The man had birthday concerts. Every other birthday he had a concert. Happy 35th birthday, Sondheim. Happy 52nd birthday, Sondheim. Are you goddamn kidding me enough already? I followed this with the June 9th, 1976 performance of Pacific Overtures, which is available in full all two hours and 20 minutes of it. It was recorded for Japanese public television. You can find it. Go find it. I watched it. I liked it. I liked my experience with it, at least. I was hoping to confirm the original air date in Japan, but... Uh this, uh, no, this information, no, 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 no. The, it eludes me is what it does. It reduces me to noises. Ah, a comment from eight years ago. Oh, no, another YouTube comment. Jonathan, oh, stop, stop punching down. No, I can't. Quote, God, how I miss Broadway musicals for grown-ups. Quote, stop saying if you, ooh, any person who says, oh, whatever happened to blank for grown-ups, books for grown-ups, TV shows for grown-ups, movies for grown-ups, musicals for grown-ups, oh, I guess someone wasn't a fan of funome yeah, That show was out around eight years ago when this comment would have been made. What's the matter? You didn't like that show? That show's for adults, ostensibly. Stop saying for grown-ups. It's stupid. It makes you seem much less you're not, you're not sounding like a grown-up when you say that, okay? You sound like a big old baby. You want your bottle, boss baby? You want your bottle? Here's another comment from eight years ago. Quote, I long for the zeitgeist of the 1970s. Can you imagine anyone today willing to back a show like this? Quote, You know, I don't have to imagine it because it's been revived many, many times since it premiered on Broadway all over the world, Uh, but please don't allow me to spoil your creamy nostalgia bath. Oh, it was better when it was before. Oh, before, before. I'm surrounded by superhero movies and jukebox musicals. When will cultured adults like me have their day? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-boss, boss, boss, baby. I certainly considered listening to the 1987 original London cast album of Pacific Overtures, which I believe is the only complete recording of the score, but according to Wikipedia, quote, unlike previous productions, this production featured a cast consisting primarily of Caucasian actors and opera singers quote ah well that's interesting with that in mind I chose to forego this particular album and I'm not interested in hearing white actors pretend to be Japanese ah yes welcome to Japan ha 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 yes underneath my kabuki makeup I could be anyone no you can't you're white you're a fucking idiot god damn it Finally, I listened, I did listen to the 2004 Broadway Revival Cast album, which features BD Wong as the reciter, Michael K. Lee as Kayama, Yoko Fumoto as Tamate, Paolo Maldoban as Monjiro, aka Paolo, aka Prince Christopher from Cinderella. Hello, of course, hello. Saab Shimono as Abe, and Telly Lee Young as the boy. Member of the Cream Pie Cutie Club, by the way. Telly, hello. This revival was actually an English language remount of a 2002 New National Theater of Tokyo revival, which itself was presented in Japanese alongside English subtitles. The Broadway revival performances are more naturalistic than the original Kabuki characterizations, and that contrast makes for a very interesting listening experience. Neither approach is right or wrong, to be clear, I'm not trying to say that. In either case, the actors absolutely saved this material, so do yourself the favor, listen to the original Broadway cast album, follow that up with the 2004 revival album, if only for the sake of comparing the, the styles of performances. This show can be done in a variety of ways, obviously, okay. It is now time to deconstruct the score of Pacific Overtures. Yes, yes, yes. We will begin with that opening number we mentioned a moment ago, the advantages of floating in the middle of the sea.
2: Nippon! The Floating Kingdom! An island empire which for centuries has lived in perfect peace undisturbed by intruders from across the sea. Here, in the month of July, 1853, there is nothing to threaten the serene and changeless cycle of our days. In the middle of the world we float, in the middle of the sea. The realities remain remote, in the middle of the sea burning somewhere wheels are turning somewhere trains are being run, wars are being won, things are being done somewhere out there not here here we paint screens yes the arrangement of the screens the screens and contemplate the view that's painted on the screens more beautiful than true beyond the screens that glide aside or further screens that open wide with scenes of screens like the ones that glide and no one presses in and no one glances out And kings are burning somewhere. Not here!
1: As the hurricanes have come, they pass in the middle of the sea. The advantages are made to last.
0: the reciter, Mako lends an astonishing amount of gravitas to Pacific Overtures and its opening number, the advantages of floating in the middle of the sea. I've said it three times now. The man is totally captivating from the moment he first appears on stage. And he needs to be, right? God knows. The reciter is our rock, our guide throughout the breadth of the evening. If we can't rely on the reciter, the whole evening could be thrown out of whack. The evening! <laughs> a phrase, a word so important I used it twice, the evening. My God, we must honor the evening. Mako plays a wide variety of parts as the show progresses, including the shogun who was killed by his mother and the inventor of the rickshaw? But his interpretation of the reciter shines brightest, oh, above all else. The Rickshaw sketch, uh, by the way, is positively begging to be cut. My goodness, two hours and 20 minutes? We could cut about five minutes, I think, by getting rid of that. The audience didn't really seem to be involved with it. It has nothing to do with the plot. I understand that the show every now and then takes us down these side roads for little episodes, vignettes, fine. I'm all for it, but that one, not so much. Not a great vignette. I would like to see a revival of Overtures that employs a Japanese writer. We've said that much. This much we have established. But I would also like to see a woman at the center of this piece. When will a Japanese woman play the reciter? When, I ask. When? I will make a poem.
3: Rain glistening On the silver birch Like my lady's tears Your turn
4: Rain Gathering Winding into streams Like the roads to Boston Your turn
3: Haze hovering like the whisper of the silk as my lady kneels. Your turn.
4: Haze, glittering like an echo of the lamps in the streets of Boston. Your
3: turn. Moon, I love her like the moon. Making jewels of the grass Where my lady walks My lady wife Moon, I love her like
4: the moon Washing yesterday away As my lady does America Your turn
3: Wind Murmuring Is she murmuring for me Through her field of dreams your turn.
4: Wind muttering, is she quarreling with me? Does she want me home? Your turn.
3: I am no nightingale, but she hears the song. I can sing to her, my lady wife. Oh,
4: but my song of her could out the sea, America.
3: Dawn flickering, tracing shadows of the pines, on my lady sleeping, your turn.
4: As she opens up her eyes, but it's I who come awake. Your turn, you go. Your turn. Leaves, I love her like the leaves, changing green to pink to gold, and that changes everything. Sun, I see her like the sun in the center of a. pool Sending ripples to the shore Till my journeys end Your turn Rain
3: Haze Moon Wind Nightingale Dawn Leaves
0: Sun i enjoy poems most as a portrait of casual friendship you know just two chill bros on a road trip two cool dudes passing the ball back and forth two romantic nerds improvising poems as a way of passing the time talk about speech and debate these two literary nerds manjiro and kayama best friends forever i love it the number does connect to the show's inescapable, looming theme, of course, that being the influence of the Western world on the Japanese. Monjiro's earliest efforts at poetry include several references to Boston. You would have heard that, that, that audio, I should say, that, that. Audio is from the 2004 Revival cast album, I just wanted to let you know that. So, several references to Boston from Manjiro. He actually enjoyed his six years in America, and now he misses that country like one might miss a lover, so it makes sense that his poetry would be colored with that sentiment. But you sense Kayama's effect on Manjiro as their game progresses the more universal and paradoxically more Japanese nature metaphors ultimately win out over the American imagery. Kayama is, unwittingly or not, placing Manjiro on a path to Japanese traditionalism, a path that will end with Manjiro killing Kayama. A bizarre irony, of course. Manjiro becomes the violent evangelist vying to make Japan great again, While Kayama dies in the Western trappings, he came to a door. Life comes at you fast.
5: Hurry up, girls, for heaven's sakes. The Americans will have already landed. I own a small commercial venture with a modest clientele in Kanagawa. I think I see one over there behind the tree. Shh. It's been my family's for centuries and doing very well for Kanagawa.
6: I hear they're covered <laughs> all with hair.
5: Like some disease, <laughs> 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 except their niche. The arrival of these giants out of the blue, bringing panic to my clients, alters my view. With so many of them fleeing, conferring decree, I find myself agreeing with the ancient
2: haiku. A nest-building bird. Seeing the tree without twigs. Looks for new forests. Exactly.
5: Welcome to Kanagawa. Welcome to Kanagawa. All my flowers disappearing in alarm. I've been reduced to commandeering from the farm, But with appropriate veneering, even Greenwood has its charm. Oh. A yo oh. That you'll have to bend for. Can you see why? Oh. That you need a friend for. Still, you might try That you do through the chemo No, not very much That you use glue Then you, no, 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 no Those you don't touch Welcome to Kanagawa
3: Music and
5: food for 20 yen Music and food and maybe then Welcome Trouble Choices are few and apart from charging double, what can you do? With my clients off defending and strangers descending, I find myself depending on the ancient haiku.
2: The bird from the sea, not knowing pine from bamboo, roosts on
0: anything. Exactly. Ernest Harada's interpretation of the madam is the highlight of Welcome to Kanagawa. The number's premise is bleak if you just read it out loud. My veteran geishas fled when those foreigners showed up. Oh no, now I am forced to work with inexperienced farm girls. If you take that at face value, I think we can assume none of the farm girls volunteered for the job. But Harada's oh brother talk about a Monday vibe makes it all seem okay somehow. I don't know what magic spell he's casting here, but it works. The madam's advice regarding various sex acts is what got to me. You want to do that one? Well, you're going to need a friend to help you out with that one, honey. Believe you me it. Make sure you do your calisthenics and make sure he pays extra when you do it, okay? That strain of lightly crass PG-13 humor is what has surprised me the most about Pacific Overtures. The show is broader and bodier than sometimes acolytes would have us believe. Everybody's so self-serious about Pacific Overtures. Ah, yes, Pacific Overtures, an ingenious meditation on the conversations we have whilst seated at the global dinner table, blah, 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 blah. A thoughtful meditation that happens to include quite a few sex jokes and Monty Python-esque sketch material, but sure, it's very self-serious. There's plenty of high drama, of course what with the suicide and the killing and the existential dread. But a lot of this material is played for laughs. Who exactly is meant to be laughing and why? Well, those are questions to consider. Nearly everyone in attendance for the 1976 video capture is bathtub white. Maybe start there. Maybe an answer can be found there. Before I forget, Ernest Harada stars in the 1985 film Volunteers, along with his Pacific Overtures co-star, Gede Watanabe. Chris and I just watched Volunteers a little over a week ago, so the timing is pretty damn eerie. Ah! And speaking of Get It Watanabe, let us hear a bit of Someone in a Tree.
1: Pardon me, I was there. You were where? At the Treaty House. The treaty there house. was a tree. Which was where? Very near. Over here. Maybe over there, but there were trees then everywhere. May I show you? There if were you trees please. then everywhere. But you were there. And I was there. Let me show you. If you please. I was younger then. I was good at climbing trees I was younger then I saw everything I was hidden all the time It was easier to climb I was younger then I saw everything Where they came and where they went I was part of the event I was someone in the tree I was younger than
6: Tell him what I see I
1: am in a tree, I am ten I am in a tree I can see. Tell me what I see. I was only ten.
6: I see men and batting. Some are old, some chatting. If it happened, I was there. I I saw everything.
1: everything. I was someone in the tree.
6: Tell him what I see.
1: Some of them have
6: gold on their coats. One of them has gold. He was younger then.
1: (laughs) Someone crawls around passing notes. Someone very old. He was only 10.
6: And there's
1: the day is incomplete without
6: someone in the tree
1: Nothing happened here I am hiding in the tree
6: I'm a fragment of the day if,
1: if I Tree. Pardon me, I am here, if you please, I am also they here. They kept drinking cups of tea.
6: They kept sitting on the floor.
1: They drank many cups, drank many cups of tea. tea. No, we told him that before. Me- If you please I am here you are where in the treaty house the treaty or very house. near can you hear I'm below so I'm underneath always. the floor and so I can't see anything I can hear them but I can't see anything but you can hear but I can hear
4: shall I listen if you please
0: G'day Watanabe, I will say his name again. So sweet in the video capture, so endearing, he is beaming, I tell you, He turned 21 years old just 17 days after this performance. That's what we in the business call time trivia, huh? Calculator math trivia. Someone in a Tree is famously Sondheim's favorite song from his own canon. It's the song he was most proud of. It certainly is the most memorable of the lot. I love the use of repetition and world building through incremental changes in the lyrics. We were talking during our coverage of Chicago. I I was talking about how much I loved the repetition in the song, We Both Reached for the Gun. This is not the kind of repetition I'm talking about here. No, someone in a tree, we see Sondheim sort of pressing his fingerprints against these phrases that repeat... And in doing so, the phrases slowly shift. It is as if he's sitting at a pottery wheel and he's slowly transforming these phrases over time. And that's how we build out the world, one tiny piece at a time. It's it's fascinating to listen to. And I like the message of the song. Those who witness history have something of value to offer. They may not have been in the room where it happens, but they can add details to the landscape slowly but surely pressing their palms and their fingerprints against that landscape we change it over time i like how the warrior has to assert himself upon entering the scene ahem Ah, excuse me it's me the warrior i was there as well hello ahem pay attention to me big time warrior over here very funny
7: So, oh, Commodore, very, very sad. Emperor like I never get. So, Commodore, Berry, very merry. President Fillmore, still more glad. <laughs> Last time we visit too short. This time we visit for slow. Last time we come, come with worship Now with worship say hello. This time requests you support for commercial intention harbor with ample dimension But you can't Only one little port for a freighter But you can't Just for fun, for your sport Maybe later but we bring many recent invention Kerosene and cement and a grain elevator A machine can red color train Maybe later All the cannon to shoot Big loud salute like so Commodore para fierce disregard confusion below President Film now named Pierce Good at last agreement is made. Letter will left come again. First result of mutual trade. Commando getting left Atlantic counselor guessing, fancy pen. Goodbye. 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 Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Always goodbye.
5: I come with letters from her majesty victoria who learning how you're trading now hallelujah gloria and sent me to convey to you her positive euphoria as well as it will give some from britain's values and portia the man has come with letters from Her Majesty Victoria, as well as little gifts from Britain, various and portia. Key for drink. I see. I thank you. I think her letters do contain a few proposals to your emperor, which, if of course he won't endorse her, put her in a temper. Or, my happily, should he agree, would serve to keep her placid, or at least a lie followed by a
2: permanent ambassador. <laughs> A treaty portent from the Code of Permanent Ambassador. A treaty portent from the Code of Permanent Ambassador. A treaty portent from the Code of Permanent Ambassador and more.
5: Her Majesty considers the arrangements to be tentative until we ship a proper diplomatic representative. We don't foresee that you will be the least bit argumentative, so please ignore the man of war we brought as a preventative.
2: Yes, please ignore the man of war. The tanker rather near to shore. It's nothing but a metaphor that acts as a preventative.
7: All just sail, sign here. Hello, hello, objection, present. President Pierce, say more. Please, Bowman. hello. Just get ambassador sent. President Pierce, get extra claws.
6: Wait, please, hello, don't forget the Dutch. Like to keep in touch. Thank you very much. Tell them to go button up the lips. What do little nibs want with battleships? We're gonna bring chocolate. Wouldn't you like to lease a beautiful little piece of chocolate? Listen, that's not to mention wonderful. Pay attention with me. Hot tulips. Hot, wouldn't you like a wooden shoe? There, can you read? Good, we will need to. One of them not too rocky, how about Nagasaki? to parts, one of them for the cocoa, why do you call it Yokohama? Ya, yeah, no Nagasaki, ya, yeah, thank you.
0: think about the multinational conglomerate of stereotypes that marches through please hello. The only element I'm really enthusiastic about is the recurring bit about the Russian's coat. Don't touch the coat! But beyond that, the number strikes me as pretty darn dull, actually. I think it's the problem—the problem is we're operating on the rule of five? Not the comedy rule of three, apparently we have, we're invoking a rule of five, I believe. We have five ambassadors coming through this number, and the game never changes. The game of the song is always the same. Hello, I'm a very cheeky, silly ambassador from another country, and I have a list of very long demands, and if you don't meet my demands, I'll kill you. Boom. Eh? Get the picture? Okay, sign here. It's the same game every time. This is material that would be the stereotypes, the characterizations I'm saying, would be dismissed by the likes of Mad Magazine for being too trite. I believe they would because they are trite. This is trite. The French guy smells. Okay. The Dutch guy loves chocolate and tulips. Fine. The British guy is a Gilbert and Sullivan collage. If anyone other than Stephen Sondheim were to offer us these characters, we would rake them over the coals. But Santan glosses everything up with his oh damn it, his sophisticated music and intricate web of lyrics, thereby making it harder to dismiss him. I mean, yeah, the Gilbert and Sullivan stuff is, is silly and cheesy, but it's also very intricate, it's very complex, it's very well written, it's a it's a great homage to Gilbert and Sullivan. He's tricky, that motherfucker, that Santan, with his five-star fundamentals, very hard to dismiss. Huh? The, the fundamentals absolutely affected my final ranking, by the way. No spoilers, don't touch the cape! And at the risk of covering old ground, is the satire effective when the writer lampooning the colonizers is himself a colonizer? Can we have a meaningful conversation when the call is coming from inside the house? I ask again, who exactly is meant to be laughing and why? Ho 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 ho! These so-called ambassadors are invading Japan for its resources. Ho 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 ho! And all in the name of diplomacy? Ah, positively outlandish. When will they? Oh, when will they learn? Etc. And also, what have you? My, but these seats are comfortable. A night out in New York City. There's nothing like it. Ah, I'm white.
6: Three. Pretty lady, in the pretty garden, can't you stay? Pretty lady, we got leave and we got pipe to die. Pretty lady, with a flower, give the lovely sailor of an hour. Pretty lady, can you understand, what i saw don't go away.
0: Do not let sometimes wispy tenors fool you for a minute. If you're out on the street and you hear the opening strains of Pretty Lady or Joanna or Not While I'm Around, that means it's time to kick off your heels and run. Run! All of these songs are motivated by a thinly disguised penchant for sexual violence, a grasping insistence. These men will say anything to get what they want, and the only thing that can stop them is a samurai sword to the belly. Back, back, you British devils! I heap no small amount of praise upon Patrick Kinzer Lau, Tim Fuji, and Mark Husu sires, because those harmonies you heard, oh my god, mesmerizing, top-notch, six-pack tight. But again, do not follow those voices into the rocks, you hear? Heed my advice, my wee bonnie lasses. I am
2: the Emperor Major. Rise and listen. Rise! In the name of progress, we will turn our backs on ancient ways, eliminate all obstacles which hinder our development. We will make the nation over, and we will do it sooner than
1: you think.
3: A practical
2: having no tree of its own, borrows another's.
1: Streams are roaring over still.
2: 16 million kilograms monosodium glutamate and 400,000 tons polyvinyl chloride resin.
4: From the Ministry of Health, by 1978, some of the beaches on the Inland Sea will be reopened for public bathing. Next.
7: 1975 Weather Bureau statistics report 100. 100-
2: Nippon, the floating kingdom. There was a time when foreigners were not welcome here, but that was long ago. A hundred and twenty years. Welcome to Japan. N-
0: The purpose of Next is to send us home with questions about the current state of Japan, or the state of Japan as it existed in the mid-1970s at least. How does the present hold up when compared to the past? Are the Japanese better off for having embraced the global community, or are they losing more than they could ever gain? These are questions that we have. I'm not sure how the song as originally conceived sought to answer those questions, because its tone falls somewhere between neutrality and casual cynicism. We seem to be saying, Ah, Japan, it is what it is, the past is the past, and there's a lot going on in the here and now, but we must not forget to keep one eye on the future. It's an everything-and-nothing mission statement, informed by trivial pursued factoids and sleepy philosophical musings. We have a lot of pollution. We make souvenirs and cars for America. Ah, très ironique. Our citizens have mixed emotions about, you know, the general state of things. Welcome to Japan. It is what it is. The commentary should run much deeper than this, but it can't because Sondheim is not Japanese. So what does he really know about it? He can't speak on behalf of this country. He knows he can't which is why the number can't become more than a marginally grim pamphlet. No one's talking about World War II. No one's talking about America's internment camps or the detonation of atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Did you think that was too much to chew on even for you, Stevie? Instead, we get an image of two young kids dancing to music We cannot hear because it's being piped through headphones. Whoa! I guess things really have changed in Japan. Back in the Edo period, if you wanted to hear music, everyone had to hear it. We might be, we might be acknowledging World War II with this line of dialogue. Quote, from the Ministry of Health, by 1978, some of the beaches of the Inland Sea will be reopened for public bathing. Quote, are you talking, what are you talking about? Are you talking about radiation from the bombs? If that's what you're talking about, have the guts to spell it out. We just watched international aggressors bully 19th century Japan for two and a half hours. The country is constantly being threatened with cannon fire, but we flinch when it comes to talking about the bombs. No, we must be subtle about these things, Jonathan. The art of subtle commentary. Sure, because the rest of the show is so subtle. From my husband and a Japanese consultant, Chris, he wanted to just to throw this out here, Sondheim had an opportunity to make bold statements regarding a number of major historical events. Reagan finally apologized for the internment camps in 1988 but Sondheim had an enormous platform in 1976 and he refused to take advantage of it. Quote, so there, I agree with Chris. It's sort of insane how they did not take advantage of that opportunity. Now, all of this commentary is in relation to the original Broadway version of Next. By 2004, we were finally willing to acknowledge the atomic bombs, or one of them, at least. The number stops in its tracks so we can hear the weapon's devastating roar. And truth be told, it's fucking effective. Big surprise.
2: Streams are roaring, over-spilling, oh next. Old is boring, new is thrilling, keep exploring, next.
1: First the thunder, just a murmur, a little blunder, next. Then the wonder, see our pretty, going under, what a pity,
2: next. Streams are flying, use the motion, next. Streams are
7: drying, mix the potion, Stream the dying, try the ocean. thunder, just a murmur, a little blunder, next, then the wonder, see already,
3: going under, what a pity, next, streams are flying, use the
4: motion, next, streams are drying, mix the ocean, streams are dying,
7: try the ocean, brilliant ocean, next, never mind the small disaster, who's the stronger, who's the faster, let the people show the master, next,
8: next, next. In 1991, Japanese investors bought the Empire State Building. Next!
4: The best-selling car in Detroit is the Toyota Camry. Next!
6: G.I. Joe, the all-American action hero, was manufactured entirely in Japan. Next!
1: The top hitter on the New York Yankees last season was Hideki Matsui.
4: Next! And last spring, Japanese self-defense forces joined their American allies to help reconstruct Iraq! Next.
7: Never mind the small disaster. Who's the stronger? Who's the faster? Let the people show the master. Next! Next! Next!
0: The revival also provides a fresh batch of trivia. Hey, did you know Japan played a role in America's invasion of Iraq? Well, it did. All right, that's all I have to say regarding the score of Pacific Overtures. We are now going to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. There are people who ask me... Why I cannot talk? Why I cannot speak? They ask me, Lyle, Lyle, the crocodile Why can't you just have a conversation with me? And that's because I only know how to express myself through song, song song at the top of the world tonight, oh when no one ever has to hide, oh I love to sing about my surrogate father, Hector P. Valenti, oh he is a good man to me, even though he abandons me time and time again he's in with the mob, he's in with the mob, they want his money, I love to sing about josh josh and his parents parents mr and mrs prim Oh, oh 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 i also love to eat the neighbor's cat mr grump's cat meow meow mr grump's cat goes in my mouth And down my throat, la la la, I swallow the cat whole, la la la, I spit the cat out, and pretend as if an accident has occurred, oh, I did not mean to do that, oh, but that's not true, I did mean to do that, I want to eat the cat at the top of the world tonight, when no one ever has to hide, I fear I've said too much, oh, sang, sang too much, I mean, la la la, Did I mention how much I love Mr. and Mrs. Prim? I love to wrestle with Mr. Prim. It helps him feel so strong. He may be in his forties, but he's not dead yet. He still knows how to fuck. Mr. Prim thought I was having an affair with Mrs. Prim, but that's not true. Other crocodiles do not interest me. They are stupid beasts. They are from another time, an ancient time, a primordial time. They do not have braids like me. They cannot sing. They can only roar. I hate them. I love Mrs. Prim. Mrs. Prim and I love to cook together and drink five, six, seven, eight coffee. I love to sing about five, six, seven, eight coffee. I love Mrs. Prim. I love five, six, seven, eight coffee. She can never know... She can never know about my love for her. I fear I've said too much. Sang too much, I mean. La la la, city of stars. Where no one ever has to hide. Oh, fuck. What am I going to do? Fuck, I don't know. No, I don't speak. I don't know how to speak. Turn that microphone off. Fuck you. Final thoughts regarding Pacific Overtures. The only substantial difference between Pacific Overtures and a show like Kismet, which we talked about last week, is that Overtures actually bothered to cast actors of color. Though this courtesy did not extend to every production, obviously, as you may recall. Looking at you, London, great job falling flat on your fucking face. Kismet was written by a pile of white people who wanted to romanticize and lampoon Baghdad. Overtures was written by a pile of white people who wanted to romanticize and lampoon Japan, as well as, you know, the world at large, oh, equal opportunity offenders and whatnot. This second pile of white people may have had good intentions, and we, you know, we hired a consultant, we gave Asian actors jobs, but remember, they walked away, they, the white people walked away with the lion's share of the credit. The actors may have brought the show to life, but we, we gave them something to breathe life into. Our names always come first, and we get the royalty checks. Got it? Yeah, we got it. Now, in 1976, as a reminder, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was A Chorus Line, and the additional nominees that season were Bubbling Brown Sugar and Chicago. So, the question, oh, the question that is so important in this moment is, which of these musicals, we've talked about all of them from this season, but which of the musicals needs to get into Shrek's belly? Let's find out together. Take it away, Shrek. (laughs) Why, it's me, Shrek. Hello again. It's time to ask which of the... fucking shows you've been talking about. You're going to get in my belly. Oh, I'm so proud of my big green hairy belly. I've got a bowl weevil in me belly button. Oh, it's giving me all right right it is. Oh, well, I'll start off by talking about Pacific Overtures, alright? Now, me, I, no, I'm not going to be eating Pacific Overtures. The optics are not great, okay? I'm very concerned about optics. I'm not going to be eating Pacific Overtures, okay? No, I don't think that would be a good idea for me. Shrek, I don't want to get cancelled, no, this voice is, this this is a voice of the people, alright? So, no, I'm not going to be eating Pacific Overtures. Now, bubbling brown sugar, same reason. No, uh, you know, you might accuse me of hiding behind political correctness. But here's the thing. No, I'm not eating the, the bubbling brown sugar musical as as a piece, as a concept, as an artistic expression. No. Now, Chicago. Now, you might be wondering, is he going to eat Chicago instead? Well, <laughs> no, I'm not going to eat Chicago. No, you fools. You fucking fools. No. I'm. Oh, hold on. I'm getting a call from Donkey. I'm just going to hit ignore. He's being so needy lately. Oh, he's mad because I forgot our anniversary. The anniversary of the first time we fucked. Oh, the Nafarelli the donkey. Now, why am I not eating Chicago? Well, that's because there's lots of guns in Chicago. And if you eat Chicago, you're going to have guns going off in your belly. Bang, bang, bang. That's not good for my digestion. I'm going to be on the toilet. I'm on the toilet enough as it is. My little tiny shack with the DreamWorks moon on the door. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Yes, you do. Okay, no, so I'm not bang, bang, bang. I'm not in the mood for that, Okay, No way. Instead, I'm going to eat a chorus line. Oh, yes. I'm going for the humdinger, the winner, the winner of the whole shebang. And you know why? Because I like the idea of rolling up all those humans in their resumes. I want to shrink them down to the size of little, tiny, little, tiny, teeny, tiny people. And I want to roll them up in their fucking resumes like they're pigs in a blanket. And I pop them into my mouth. Pop, pop, pop. Ha, <laughs> Oh, it's going to be fucking delicious. And they're going to say, oh, God, please
6: don't do it. I
7: only wanted a job.
0: Well, now your job is to fill my belly. <laughs> I say to you, a chorus line, Get in my belly! Oh, 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 oh. oh, this bull weevil is really jumping on me fatty tissue. I got to go. Thank you so much for having me again. I can't wait to eat all those fucking humans in a like <laughs> All right, fucking steak it, steak it sleazy. That's my new phrase, steak it sleazy. <laughs> all right, bye. Bye, Shrek. Thank you very much. The time has come for me to rank Pacific Overtures against all of the other shows we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, you can find this complete ranking by going to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. You will access our Linktree via that Twitter platform. Go to our Linktree page, find our spreadsheet. The second tab of that spreadsheet will provide that ranking info. Pacific Overtures, you are going at number 69, Between Applause at number 68, and A Year with Frog and Toad at number 70. Now, you might be surprised by that ranking. I said as much earlier, you might be surprised because I had so much criticism. I leveled so much criticism against the show. But at the end of the day, Stephen Sondheim's fundamentals, his his goddamn skills, allow that show to elevate higher than it normally would and of course the actors make a fucking meal out of the whole thing it's amazing what they do with this material so I don't think it would be fair to really knock the show further down but you know it can always change again I say this to you our ranking can change at any point I have no changes to announce I keep meaning to sit down and look at this ranking but oh I hope my mouth didn't make a crazy sound on the word meaning meaning okay so show related ephemera I have one piece of ephemera for you This is a February 28, 2018 red carpet interview with Gede Watanabe. This took place on the opening night of the East-West Players and Japanese American Cultural and Community Center production of Allegiance, the musical Allegiance, which we talked about via the Snub Club on Patreon. Now, in this production, George Takei and a number of other actors reprised their roles from the 2015 Broadway production of Allegiance. Yes, that's right. Okay, so that's the context you need. Tanabe was not in the cast for this production of Allegiance. He was merely attending, and so he was interviewed on the red carpet. Here is that interview. My feelings about I'm just
8: so excited to see this. I, I, I saw it in San Diego, and I know it's changed, so I'm excited to see what this version is right now, so I can't wait. You so. saw
3: the San Diego version? That was years ago. <laughs> No, Did time. you get to see the New York version?
8: No, you know what? I never got to New York to see it, so that's why I'm excited to see it now.
6: Oh, my God. I want to talk to you after the show.
8: Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm sure because the changes have been really phenomenal. I understand so. Okay, well, in case I don't talk to you after the show, um, so you've seen it. You saw. I mean, you saw it in in san diego um so you know the storyline you're familiar with it all um when you first saw it what kind of feelings did it evoke in you well i it was quite wonderful because it it reminded my parents of course i the first person that i thought about were my parents because my mother was in the camps so uh i just thought it was really an, an honorarium towards her and towards her life so that's what was really great to me about it.
3: Did your mom
6: talk to you about her experiences? You know,
8: my, my mother never did talk that much about it. And I think they were, they were embarrassed about it, I think. So, so they were of that generation that they didn't talk very much about it. And so I didn't know very much about it until, actually, until uh, high school, when I saw a little blurb in the history book. And I went home and I said to my mom, I said, Wait, you kept saying you went to camp, but this wasn't the camp we know. So this it took me a while to adjust to really realize what she was saying when she said camp. That's so amazing yeah, yeah. that you would find out from a book. Oh, yeah. It was from a high school book, I remember. And it just one little section in it, and I thought, Well, something should be said more about this, and here we are, so there you go.
0: To determine which show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Nabbit. Everyone ready? Then away we go. next subject of our main feed is the 1969 nice winner of the tony award for best musical it ran for 1,217 performances this show was actually revived on broadway very recently as of this recording do you know what it is ah it's 1776 Oh, sit down, John, sit down, John, Mr. Feeney, shut the fuck up. That's the next subject of the main feed, 1776. That episode will drop Wednesday, February 8th, so you will have to wait a couple of weeks. I hate to tell you this, but be patient, be patient, and we will deliver unto you our coverage of 1776. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you will get Monday early access to all of these main feed episodes. Everyone else will have to wait until Wednesday. You'll get them at the crack of dawn on Monday morning. You also get a verbal shout out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least one dollar a month. Caroline, Helena, Greg, Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol, thank you. You also get 19 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, a review of the trailer for. Of the film cats the little mermaid live a review of the film cats in total emma at chicago shakespeare theater take me to the world a sondheim 90th birthday celebration Hamilton via Disney+, Plus Documentary Now, original cast album, co-op, John Mulaney and the Sag Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, a review of the trailer for West Side Story 2021, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, Annie Live, The Notebook at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and Beauty and the Beast, a 30th celebration. You get season one, that's 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself. It's a very personal audio diary series, it is. And finally, you get all 15 episodes of M3, The Movie Musical Man, a series for which we watch a trio, trios of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Our 16th and final episode, that's right, the series finale of M3, is dropping next week on the 25th. The theme for that finale is the Next Chapter Trilogy, Funny Lady, Grease 2, and, oh, Love Never Dies, of course. This is the movie musical sequel theme. We are so excited. Ooh, we are so excited. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, all 10 episodes of the Wildcats Everywhere podcast. That is a series dedicated to Disney's high school musical franchise, and you get a special one-off episode all about Julie and the Phantoms. Coming March of this year, TV VIP. That's right, our brand new series dedicated to musical TV shows. We're so excited to be bringing that to our $3 a month tier. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described Plus, you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast. You get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, an advice series hosted by The Phantom of the Opera. You get all 14 episodes in our Broadway and Chicago review series and volumes one through five of Shout About It, collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shout outs from the first 100 and 25 episodes of the show. And if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described. Plus, you get exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. Season 1, that's 12 episodes of The Snub Club. Ah, we mentioned that earlier. A show dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for Best Musical at the Tony Awards. Now, they were snapped. You also get 12 episodes in our Turn It Off series, a show dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. Stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, Podbean, .podbean musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod, and email me at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny, oh, and the both. Oh, happy birthday again, Benny. You're so fucking fantastic. We love you. Alex Green, thank you for our beautiful logo, and thank you, Zach Little, for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes! Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. yet again. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen. Of and good night.